Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. Tom, good morning. I'm afraid it's a wet old day. Uh, Not in Barna. It's wonderful in Barna. Oh, you're joking. <laughs> we're, we're in Air Square and it's it's pouring down. And it's we could only say summer is on hold. Uh, in Air Indeed. Square at the moment. Yes, yeah, my right. wife would say the same. Yeah. Well, that could be a good omen because people might read the newspapers more and whether they're in a hotel or a guest house or indeed in their homes. So what yeah. are you doing this week, Tom? Well, <clears throat> I when I was growing up, there was very little theatre really in Galway. <laughs> we had the school play. We yeah. had a, an occasional visit from somebody like Anu McMaster. Yes. There were, of course, regular productions in the Tyvark, some terrific, wonderful ones, and occasional uh, productions by Dram Sock in UCG. And there were small groups, but they never lasted a long time, really, like the Galway Little Theatre Company or the D&I, as it was called, the Dominican Indignation. Uh, which was made up of past pupils of the Jazz and of Taylor's Hill, and which largely yes, did I, I think Shakespearean I've seen plays. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were the Lamplighters. There, there was an attempt in the early seventies to set up uh, a summer professional theatre, the Galway Repertory Theatre, and then this was followed uh, by a disastrous, unfortunately, Celtic Arts Theatre set up by Frank Bailey and. A partner of his whose name I can't remember now but who's very involved still in theatre in Canada right so it was a very auspicious and historic occasion this week 46 years ago this week when Druid Theatre first uh tread the boards when they first put on their first play which was the playboy of the western world and it was in the Jesuit hall the following night they put on it's a two foot six inches above the ground world by <laughs> Kevin Laffin. And on the third night, it was The Loves of Cass Maguire by Brian Freel. These were young graduates of UCG, all had been involved in Dramsock, uh, and they had a huge amount of energy and they needed it because that summer was one of the hottest in years. And it took extraordinary energy and dedication, really, to rehearse three plays a day, three plays in one day yeah one in the morning one in the afternoon and one at night but as luck would have it the response was quite good the audiences came uh the actors used to go up and down shop street selling tickets but the hall was actually being used for exercise sessions during the day so they had to lay out the seats before each performance and tidy them away afterwards and not content it seems to me with all of that work they started very quickly within a couple of months to produce lunchtime theatre in the Folkcastle. This was a space behind the Coachman Hotel in Dominic Street. Yes. Now, 
lunchtime theater was an alien kind of yes. idea in Galway in the early 70s. Uh, but it involved a lot of hard work because they had to carry the lights, the drapes, the props, etc., from the Jesuit hall every day <laughs> and back again after <laughs> their lunchtime. Extraordinary, yes. And yes. Their, their next big production in the Jesuit hall was the Glass Menagerie. Now, the significance of this was that they had to rehearse this between 11 at night and 6 in the morning because the hall was not available during mm. the day. Mm. So, you know, the, yeah. the dedication was paying off. They were generating an audience. Mm. They were uh, interesting new people in theatre. So they leased this forecastle space and they converted it into a 47 theatre, seat theatre, sorry. And uh, they managed to continue through the good times, the bad times, to putting on plays. And then in 1978, <clears throat> um, I had a little map shop down at the end of High Street. And Gary Hines came in one day and she said, have you got a map of Galway there? So we took it out anyway, and we started to go through it. What are you looking for? I said, <laughs> we, we have to have a new space, 47 we can't survive on a 47-seat theatre, yes. even if we filled it every night. Yes. So we went all around the map looking for vacant sites and so on. And she kept coming back to the lane, to Courthouse Lane, to this derelict, empty warehouse in the lane. And uh, <clears throat> so I told her it belonged to McDonald's and that she had to go down to talk to Don O'Donoghue. And... Uh, that was it. She walked out. So a couple of weeks later, after lunch one day, I was driving in back to work and coming in past the custom house. And there was a black Mercedes pulling in to the right in front of me. And the two doors opened and Donna O'Donoghue and Gary Hines got out. And I thought, God, she has them. She has them. I know her drummer. Oh, my God, this is fantastic. It, it was an absolute yeah. wonderful thrill. Yeah. And fair play, Donna. Yeah. He handed over the theatre at a peppercorn rent yes. to Druid. Now it was in a terrible state. Yes. And suddenly all of these actors and directors became painters and carpenters and plumbers and electricians. Yeah. As they slowly and gradually began to convert this wreck of a building. Yeah. Warehouse. Into a theater, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. and they did. They were very skilled. Yeah. Now, I mean, yeah. like it was Melissa Costello who was the electrician, but he was under the tutelage of a, an actual electrician. But yeah. he did an awful lot of the donkey work, for instance. Uh, but uh, the unforgettable night finally arrived in May 1979, when they formally opened this theater mm -hmm. uh, with the Threepenny Opera. Uh, by Bertolt Brecht. Yes. And yeah. this was an incredibly exciting development, not just yeah. in theatre in Galway, but nationally. And yeah. in fact, and it was also a very interesting indicator of the changes that were going on in all of the streets around yes. that area. Yeah. You know, old buildings being reclaimed and and new people coming in, starting up businesses of yes, their own, Kerwin's bringing ring. a whole different kind of energy yeah. and atmosphere into yeah. the area. 
that is now known, you know, in under like it was grey, and oh. at the time, you know, yeah. empty, derelict, and now it's throbbing oh. with energy. Okay. And so I on. agree, Tom. You 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 must mention too that they went professional. I mean, yes. they had no other means of support. Uh, these young actors, as you say. Uh, and so, you know, this dedication was extraordinary. And I'm sure they were living on baked beans. They couldn't afford much else. I think Mick Lally gave up his teaching job to stay with them. Indeed, and, indeed. you know, during those dark winter months, like, you know, when there were no visitors in town, they, the, 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 the lunchtime theatre was a great success because not only did you pay very little money, but you got something to eat as well. You got a sandwich. And a cup That's of right. tea, which was absolutely yeah. wonderful. Well, so it was the best value right. in town. It was the best value in town. Yeah. 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 You're quite right when you say they completely shattered the notion that uh, yeah. professional theatre could only be made in Dublin. Exactly. Uh, that had been for so many, many years. Yeah. Druid completely broke the mould there. And that spirit of adventure, it stayed with them because uh, now that they had their own theatre, they became a lot more adventurous. They, yes. they, and not only did they put on extraordinary productions, but they toured the country and they played in all kinds of um, venues, small places. Yeah, My in-laws came from uh, East Mayo, outside Swinford. And when Druid brought famine up to Kilasser, I got 10 tickets. And I sent them up to my parents-in-law and they hired a minibus. It took them about an hour to tell me of this adventure. They hired a minibus. Yeah. 11 of them got into the <coughs> minibus. They went to Kilasser. Druid had been setting up with putting on all their lights and they blew the entire electricity grid for miles around. <laughs> so the crowd were all standing very patiently, apparently waiting outside. Yeah. Eventually, the ESB came to an arrangement and they used kind of half the lights. Now, my in-laws would have been small farmers. And so the famine, Tom Murphy's famine, made a phenomenal impact on them. Yes. And uh, really a genuinely powerful impact on them. They lived through every moment of this play. Mm. And then, if you remember that production, it was an open set, open on the floor in St. Yes, do. in Galway. <clears throat> and it was the same in Kalasa. And so the entire audience came onto the set after the play and mixed with and talked mm. to the um, <clears throat> all the cast and so on. Yeah. And uh, eventually... The bus driver got the 11 of them back into the minibus and they went back then to one person's house where all the tea and the sandwiches and everything were. And about three hours later, <clears throat> there was this incredible buzz of conversation. Yes. The bus driver about three hours later said, listen, I, I have to go home. If you want to come with me, you can come now. And that's what finally broke up the party. And the very last thing my mother-in-law said to me was, and do you know, by the way, Tom, I met Miley, she said. Oh, yeah. Now, that would have been an enormous deal for her yeah. up to then. I'd say this in no patronizing way at all, yeah, no, no. but uh, genuinely. But... Um, it was an indicator. It was of very, very minor importance to the yeah. impact the play had on them all. 
Yeah. Now, that kind of pioneering uh, <clears throat> by Druid was and continues to be just remarkable and wonderful. Expanding and bringing very highly professional, very high standard of theatre to the country, really, to places it would never go. And um, I think it's wonderful. Absolutely. I, I also have to say, yeah. you know, that the other major impact, <clears throat> of course, on theatre in Galway came from Donna O'Donoghue, who sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago. He, he was in Dramsock. He was in school with me. He was in Dramsock in UCG. And that probably really excited his interest in theatre. But he handed over, and McDonough's have handed over now, this theatre to Druid, uh, which was a remarkable act, really, uh, when you think of it. Yeah. Um, oh, generous. Wonderful philanthropy there. Yeah. But then, not only just in the very recent past, in a couple of years ago, he again, he has funded what is now known as the O'Donoghue Centre for Drama, Theatre and Performance in UCG. And um, like this, this is going to have and already is impacting on theatre in Ireland and on performance in Ireland. Yes. Uh, but I think down the line, having so many graduates emerging from that institution are going to really make a powerful statement and impact on Irish theatre. Well, so I, we should be extremely grateful to Donna. He has left us a remarkable legacy in this city. I couldn't agree more. A very generous man. And uh, I always thought he had a great grin. And when Donna grinned, his whole face lit up. He could grin for Ireland. And he was a very <laughs> generous man, as you say. And what he did was outstanding. And, you know, what we think is theatre can barely survive. Uh, nowadays, it's very difficult for theatres to survive, particularly with the lockdowns. And what really impressed me about Druid, well, I've been impressed by Druid, in fact, since their initiation. But what really impressed by me was last summer, when we just kind of peeped out of the lockdown to some extent, Druid did a succession of Lady Gregory's plays in Cool Park and nice. did them supremely well, used the landscape. Nice. Uh, we, as an audience, we did not sit down. We moved around. Now, there were quite short plays. And uh, I, 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 honestly, talk about the magic of theatre. Druid got it exactly right. And Lady Absolutely. Gregory herself, uh, Marie Mullen, uh, appears as Lady Gregory. So to move us from play to play, she just appeared in the distance and waved her arms very gently to yeah. come and follow her to the next location. Yeah. And this worked magnificent because there are enough outbuildings and, you know, interesting landscapes at cool to present to have a wonderful natural backdrop to the plays they presented and yeah. there's a wonderful quotation actually uh, by lady gregory you know so much work went on at cool park in the beginning of the 20th century so many brilliant people hammered out plays talked discussed ideas and wrote poetry as well as everything else and painted pictures of gregory had a wonderful phrase it was, I have often thought our ghosts will haunt that path and our talk will hang in the air. 
And Indeed. that was the theme, if you like, for the, the Gregory plays last show. It was absolutely magnificent. Yeah. Now, going yes. again on what you said, not only did they, do, they did knock us for six, in, but they went on an extensive tour uh, to Tum, Benleslough, Glenamady, Kyle Morkin, you know, yeah. no other theatre in Ireland. And there is a very famous theatre in Ireland that gets a great deal of money every year. And so why not? But yeah. the money that Druid get from the Arts Council compared to what the Abbey Theatre gets is really quite ridiculous. There is yes. no reason why Druid should not be on par with the Abbey, if not slightly succeeding it in the sense that Druid bring theatre to the people. And I've always done that very, very consciously. And it's very rare when we see an Abbey play in Galway. In fact, it must be many years since I've seen an Abbey play in Galway. It's a pity. And, um, you know, that they should be doing far more. They should justify their money far more. Now, I'm sure they'll be very upset when they hear that kind of comment. I don't really mean it as a criticism. I just think the balance is unfairly balanced in fairness to the recognition Druid should get nationally. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. Anyway. Enough yeah. of Druid. What are you doing? This no, no, week? Tom. No, I, I, I'm fascinated by Druid because they're part of our lives. And oh, indeed, and hugely you know, significant. Yeah, and I, I've an seen, important part. Yes, I know, and I've seen the Druids sing in New York. I mean, you should see the reception from the audiences there. It's just fantastic. Well, well I suppose if you were to name a highlight uh, of your Druid career, I I would find it extremely difficult. There have been so many, but I think. Waiting for Godot, yeah. sitting in the rain on Inishman for me was absolute <laughs> magic. Yeah, yeah. Just magic. Weavers of dreams and spells. I know. That's what Druid are. Oh, well said, well said. Well, I, I'm weaving a different spell this week. I'm still on about Claire Sheridan. When we were nearly coming towards the end, I think I've got to draw it to a conclusion, but I couldn't resist this week. I, I haven't quite concluded as yet, because in somewhat disgrace from going over to Soviet Russia and sculpting the leaders of the revolution there, her mother, she came back to London and, uh, you know, it didn't go down very, very well, even though people were fascinated. And she wrote a book from Mayfair to Moscow, which sold like hotcakes and a lot of hypocrisy about her, of course. But people were fascinated by her. But she was invited to receptions merely as a curiosity rather than a personality. But when she went to New York, she was a celebrity. And she fell again. Churchill um, was a bit nervous again. Churchill was very busy at this stage. He was trying to hammer together the Anglo-Irish uh, truce and make something of that agreement, which took a great deal of time and energy. And he didn't want Cousin Claire running around, uh, you know, creating trouble again. And he contacted a friend of his, a man called Barney Brook, who was... Uh, Churchill had met him during the First World War. Barney Brook was in charge of munitions in America and supplied England with all the munis munitions it needed and more. And Churchill and Barney became great friends. And Churchill wrote to Barney and said, look, please, my cousin is apt to put her foot in it now and then. I really 
do not want to be embarrassed further. I'd be very grateful, and you can say this in your Churchillian voice, Tom, I'd be very grateful if you would look after her. And Barney did his best, but it wasn't easy because <laughs> he, he describes it there. Um, first of all, when Anita Leslie was writing a biographer of Claire, she naturally uh, looked up Barney Brook. <laughs> when, he, when he heard the connection, he was very amused and he heaved with laughter. And he said, really, really, she was extraordinary that she, she just didn't get on with women. Claire Sheridan, she, she, she didn't even try to get on with women, you know, but she came to New York and she ran around like a fire engine, um, scandalizing high society and uh, saying things that, you know, women wouldn't dream of saying. And she'd say it straight out at dinner parties. She couldn't think why women should depend on men. And it was a woman's privilege to bear a child and to use a lover to bear a child and not to be dependent on men, not to have to uh, corner a man in marriage and make sure she had plenty of money before she had a child. She should just do this when the notion took her and she fell in love and she was entitled to choose her lover for her child. And Barney told um, Anita that, of course, these stories were told at dinner table and, you know, the kind of women in New York society, absolutely appalled. They, they loved her, but were appalled at her. And all the men at the table would look down into their plates and say nothing because they, they knew she was probably right, but they didn't say very much. But anyway, uh, America was great and generous as it is, especially to artists, I'm glad to say, even the ones that yeah. desire. But there was one particular artist that was very interested in Claire Sheridan. And that's the story I tell this week. Out of the blue, she got an invitation from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, the famous film studio, to come to Los Angeles, all expenses paid. And of course, she jumped at it. She had her child Dick with her as a small boy. And she went to Los Angeles and she had a wonderful week uh, visiting movie land and seeing all the, this, that and the other. And eventually at dinner, um, the reason why she was summoned came over to her and it was Charlie Chaplin. And Charlie Chaplin is a very interesting man on screen and off screen. Uh, on screen, of course, he created this most extraordinary persona, uh, which became worldwide phenomena. And Chaplin today, we can still admire his movies for his acrobatics and his dancing and his extraordinary, you know, feats that he does, apart from his pathos and, you know, acting, uh, okay. which is very stylized, I know. Yeah. It was very, very famous. He also, though, really, um, he started life with his brother and a single parent family, his poor mum, who had serious mental problems. But all the different voices that the mother would make in her suffering, Chaplin took all that on board, not realizing that he did, but he did. And he looked at his and followed his mother and mimicked her in his own mind. And he joined then uh, Music Hall and went from Music Hall to Hollywood, of course, where he became yes. a success. But he was fascinated by Claire Sheridan. Here was a woman from high society, an aristocratic woman who went to the Soviet Union, 
which Chaplin kind of admired. He was not a communist, but he admired it, who went to the Soviet Union for artist's sake, and uh, she went there as an artist. And they had an affair, and uh, it was... Uh, a secret affair, of course. Uh, Chaplin, Chaplin didn't really want people to know. So they, they went off and had an idyll somewhere by the sea in California. And it would have, it would have been a private affair, only that Chaplin was recognized by some children. And sure enough, uh, photographers turned up with cameras. And poor Charlie, of course, who always had to be fairly polite for the studio's sake to the press, did his best. And the headlines really began to come out. One was that um, a journalist asked him, you know, how old was Miss Sheridan? And uh, Charlie Chaplin, of course, who was a bit notorious for going out with younger women, said that he was very pleased to say that Miss Sheridan was four years his senior. And the headlines in the newspaper was, Miss Sheridan is old enough to be his mother. <laughs> so... Yeah. So it was time to go, and Barney Brook sent for her, said, for heaven's sake, come back to New York, commissions await. So that's the story I'm, I'm in it, Tom. And Wonderful. I know if you listen. But she you is do? a source of so many, isn't she? She is a source of so many. But it's oh, drama. Yeah. It's drama as well. You know, it's wonderful drama. I mean, you're talking about the Druid. I'm talking yeah. about Claire Sheridan, who was yes. a very dramatic woman. But I'm Absolutely. I'm really I'm really going to end it next week. We'll get her back to Galway by hook or by crook. Okay. <laughs> All right, Tom. Lovely. I yes. loved that about Druid. I loved your reference to Dunno Donahue. Really Thank fine you. man. The town will miss him greatly. And I Indeed. said, I closed my eyes and I can see his grin and what a yeah. lovely, warm man he was. Indeed. Well, may he rest in peace. Totally. Take care, Tom. All right.